This is the Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck Podcast. Every game. You are going to go back to throw the ball. Sets up, looks, throws toward the corner of the end zone. It is intercepted. Intercepted. The next time the ball. Every story. If we just continue to push and grind and go and take care of our guys, it's going to be built to last. The Scoop Duck Podcast. Scoop Duck owner, Justin Hopkins. And Matt Bagley from 96.1, 580, the game. Hi, everybody. Matt Bagley back with you for another week of Scoop Duck in Hi-Fi. And I'm joined across the interwebs by my friend Justin Hopkins from ScoopDuck.com. There's a lot of good to take away from last Saturday, a little bit of bad as well, and a, a little bit of good and bad, I think, in the Oregon program as a whole. We'll try to go through all of it on this week's pod, but let's start with the good from Saturday. Ducks in a Pac-12 after dark, 7.30 kick at Autzen. Handle that challenge. I loved the running game in the second half. How about Byron Cardwell going off? How about Kayvon Thibodeau and the Oregon defense making plays? And Oregon gets a win over Wazoo. How did you feel about that win? Yeah, you know, I felt really good. And and I know we'll get into this later on. But, um, you know, I, I honestly did last week, had more concerns about that game than I do the Utah game this week. And I understand Utah's a better team. I just felt there were a lot of things that were kind of working against Oregon uh, in that game in the sense that, like you said, it was a Pac-12 after dark 7.30 game, you know, kind of wedged in between Washington and Utah. So to me, it had, you know, trap game potential. And uh, yeah, I I was really nervous. And I just, uh, for me, I I, I don't, you know, the, the call about these other things that happened, I don't really care if they won. You know, it doesn't matter if they won by three, seven, or a hundred. Uh, just getting that win to me, you know, said a lot for Oregon. Um, you know, obviously, as Mario Cristobal praises, go one and zero every week, and they and they did that. But uh, yeah, feel really good because that game. Uh, I just I, I had a really bad vibe about that game, and uh, you know, Ducks were able, like you said, to pound it out. Yeah, I thought they were going to win, but I agree with you in the sense of. If you told me, hey, either the Washington State game or the Utah game is going to be a butt clencher, it's going to be close and tight and scary, I would have picked the Wazoo game. Like, I I don't understand why Utah is favored. We'll we'll dive into that in a few minutes. But uh, you you mentioned that call, Anthony Brown, touchdown. It was not ruled a touchdown. And then on replay, everybody thought it would be a touchdown. And there's a bit of a controversy about that replay uh espn reportedly not bringing enough cameras to the game to give the pac-12 replay center the uh, best possible look on that play you went to the game right so so you didn't see the debacle we saw on tv correct no and you know i I think even more frustrating uh to that point is if you were at the game it was pretty clear there it was pretty clear uh you know on air that you know there was not a really good camera angle you know i i don't love the call um you know it's one of a lot of bad calls that we seem to week see week over week uh you know 
I understand why the refs let that one play instead of whistling it dead. You whistle it dead. You can't go back and review and give the ball away. So I, I do give them, I, I think they deserve in a really difficult position, like you said, to, you know, once, of course, once they whistled or didn't whistle, excuse me, didn't whistle and let them play, you know, now you got to go back and look at the videotape and see indisputable evidence that, you know, would show that he had possession. You know, they obviously didn't have that camera angle available to him. I really don't feel like they did anyways. Right. Um, you know, and so, um, you know, like a perfect storm of errors, if you will, it just really was a, a bad situation and continues to shine a spotlight uh, you know, on something that Commissioner Kliakov really needs to, you know, put a lot of effort into this offseason. I would hope that the Pac-12 fixes that TV issue um, just because you're a Power 5 conference. You already have exposure trouble, right? We know that most of the country can't get Pac-12 network. Even if you live in Oregon and the, and the West Coast, some people can't get Pac-12 network. I raise my hand. I'm among them. And I, I think with those exposure issues, you need a deal with the networks. And George Klyovkov has to work this out where you don't get that kind of treatment again because it almost cost you a spot at the playoff. Well, and, you know, it's one of those things where if you're talking about a, a good football team, you know, and this has plagued Oregon this year, you know, they keep shooting themselves in the foot, right? So instead of beating, you know, Arizona as much as they should or, or lost to Stanford, you know, Oregon kind of shot themselves in the foot with simple mistakes, you know, uh, bad penalties, things of that, that nature. You know, the Pac-12 has to stop doing that in, in essence as well. I mean, you are really you know, scrimping and, and, and clawing and fighting for every little bit of respect you can get right now. And you continue to shoot yourself in the foot with, hey, you know, we don't even have good good camera views for our refs to review. Our refs are essentially the laughing stock of college football because they are week after week. Uh, you know, those are things that have to get fixed. And, uh, you know, I, I did say this on the site, you know, there's not really any way for, for the commissioner to really fix the Pac-12 officiating two-thirds of the way through the season. So, bad officiating aside, and I agree with you, right? Like, there's a reason there is a hashtag Pac-12 refs and not a hashtag SEC refs. Um, what was the biggest positive for Oregon coming out of that game? Well, you know, let's, let's, let's include what you just mentioned there. The fact that even a you know, a potentially negative outcome from, from the refs there didn't impact the game for Oregon. You know, they were able to to be far enough ahead to win, to win out the game and not have that be, you know, potentially the biggest storyline of, of Sunday and Monday. You know, how Oregon lost off a bad call or something to that degree. You know, Oregon was able to establish the run and not just establish the run, but I mean, it, I mean, it was just unreal what Oregon was able to do on the ground you know, and, and Washington State knew what the Ducks were going to do every time they lined up the ball, and it didn't matter. Um, you know, the defense you had a little bit of a lull there. You know, let's just say from from somewhere towards the you know middle to end of first quarter throughout the second quarter, you know, obviously you were tied to 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 leave the half tied at the half with Washington State, but then you came out and really made a big statement. Uh, you know, they did get the garbage time touchdown, but other than that, you really put it on them. So a lot of good takeaways there. 
Uh, you know, I think that Oregon's really kind of found itself. You know, they understand that they're going to need to be a run-heavy, run-first type of offense. Uh, I think that it's pretty well aware that if the defensive line's getting pressure on the quarterback, that helps their chances significantly at success. And, uh, you know, I, I, I think that uh, I think that those two things will fare them well against Utah and, of course, uh, against Ohio State or excuse me, Oregon State down the line as well. Now, you were in Autzen, so you didn't have to deal with this torture. But Rhodes Scholar Rod Gilmore said he didn't expect Kayvon Thibodeau to make an impact Saturday. And I actually liked his rationale for it. He talked about how. Wazoo liked to get the ball out quick. It was one, two seconds and throw uh, leading up to that game. And then, of course, they weren't able to throw that way, and Kayvon Thibodeau did make an impact Saturday. Uh, Were you surprised he was able to wreck that game? Well, you know, that's the beauty of being on defense, right? Even though it's pre-snap, you're allowed to move around, you know? <laughs> and, and for the offense, it's not so simple. So, I, you know, I, I think that if you're Coach DeRuiter, you know, Oregon's defensive coordinator, you know, right now you got to understand that that's going to be the case with everybody you face moving forward. They're going to do their best to scheme away from Kayvon Thibodeau, which will be a lot of throwing or, throwing or running the ball the opposite direction uh, and getting the ball out you know, obviously very quickly so that he doesn't have a chance, you know, to get to your quarterback. Now, if you're if you're Tim DeRuiter, one of the things we saw, he even lined up Kayvon Thibodeau at middle linebacker. Uh, it was in the fourth quarter, I believe, uh, in the game. So you're going to have to keep moving him around. You're going to keep having to, to come up with ways that you can get your star defensive player in the game. Um, those are some of the things that comes come with those lofty paychecks you're earning as a defensive coordinator. So, um, you know, that's going to be the game within the game, I think, moving forward. Um, if you're Washington State, that's 100% what I would do as well. You know, there's a reason people aren't throwing the football Mikhail Wright's direction, okay? That's why they're picking on DJ James. That's why they're picking on the other guys. So, you know, same thing with Kayvon Thibodeau. Hey, let's run away from him. Let's let's try and, you know, neutralize his speed. Let's get the ball out, you know, two-step, three-step drop, get the ball out those types of things. So we'll see more of that, you know, and it's again, going to be up to coach DeRuiter to prepare for it, to, you know, maybe confuse the offense a little bit to move Kayvon Thibodeau around pre-snap and, uh, you know, find ways to keep him involved in the game. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I I think this is the last time, or correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think this is the first time the Ducks have played Utah since the Pac-12 title game, right? Uh, yep, Pac-12 title game. Uh, I believe that game was played December 6th of 2019. I just yeah. happened to look it up today. Yeah. So yeah, it's been a while since these two these two teams have met. Uh, and I'm going off memory. I'm sure I could look it up on Google, but I believe that game was 34-15 in favor of the good guys. A clobbering. Yeah. My, my, yeah. I, I remember that date because my parents got remarried that night, and uh, they myself and my wife were all in Reno just celebrating, partying like crazy. And uh, I I remember I I caught the first half of that game live in our hotel room. And then we had to go and, you know, we're out, you know, partying in casinos and stuff. And and then at the end of the night, we come back for like one last drink at the casino next to our hotel. And 
I'm in the sports book because it was the only bar in the casino that uh, didn't have a big line at the time. We're at the sports book and we see all the TVs and I see Mario Cristobal clutching some roses and I just know like, oh, Oregon won, right? Uh, what, what a great game. What a great moment. That first signature win, you know, wins the Pac-12 title for the first time. And, and what I remember the most about that game is how Kayvon Thibodeau was just unstoppable. Like, you talk about how they moved him around on Saturday. I, I think the first glimpses of that came in that Pac-12 title game because they moved him around all over the field in that one. Yeah, had to move him around. You know, uh, uh, one of the things that sticks out, st- excuse me, sticks out to me about that game is it very much – has the same storylines as this game. You know, both teams are playing pretty good football. You know, you, you will Oregon be able to handle a physical team like Utah? Because at that moment, you know, here we are a couple of years ago, people were still wondering if Mario Cristobal really was, you know, leading a physical football team uh, in Oregon. And uh, the Ducks whooped them. I mean, both sides of the ball went in there and, and pushed them around and left absolutely no questions. And I, I feel like those same questions are you know, somewhat being applied this year, you know, in this game this week is, you know, hey, can can Oregon handle Utah? They're pretty physical on the line of scrimmage. And, uh, I mean, no disrespect to Utah, but the Ducks beat Oregon, Ohio State. And right. <laughs> I'm, right. pretty sh- I'm pretty sure they're a little bit more loaded uh, on the line of scrimmage than, uh, than Utah is. So, like we said at the beginning of the pod uh, and, and kind of went into, I feel better about this game for Oregon than I did last week against Washington State. And and no disrespect to Utah, it'll be a good game. It should be a, a difficult game. You know, by no means will Oregon go in there and clean house. But I do think the Ducks should win um, comfortably. I don't think the uh, outside weather elements will impact them after what they experienced in Seattle a couple weeks back. And uh, it certainly looks like the offense is playing it's best ball. Now, yeah, they're not throwing the ball downfield. They're, the passing game is still lacking, right. but they've obviously recognized what their bread and butter is, and they're figuring figuring out ways to maximize that. Oh, totally, totally. I, I think about the fourth quarter against Fresno, the first half against Ohio State, the second half against Washington in that ridiculous weather that you just talked about. And I think about the fourth quarter against Wazoo. This team isn't throwing the ball like crazy right now. It's it's not Peyton Manning and, and the Colts back in the day slinging it across the yard. But they're going to pound the rock, and you can't stop it. To me, it's it's signature Mario Cristobal football. It is. And, you know, here's the thing. I know I said this on the site. I, it was just in a comment. But, you know, if Oregon wasn't doing what they're doing, and that is sticking to their strengths and figuring out ways to win running the football, we'd all be bitching at them because they're losing games trying to throw the football. Like, hey, you guys obviously can't throw the ball. What are you doing? You know, you should be playing to your strengths. And that's exactly what Oregon's doing. And I feel like folks aren't aren't giving them enough credit for that. Everybody, instead, everybody wants to whine and bitch and moan about the lack of a passing game. Well, guess what? Anthony Brown has his limitations. Okay, the staff's very well aware of what they are. So instead of asking him to do things he simply can't do, mm-hmm. you know, they're tailoring a game plan around his strengths, which is him running the football. He's exceptionally good at that. Uh, you know, and 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 leaning heavily on the run game, which the offensive line. Uh, has done a tremendous job there. So I think you got to give this staff a lot of credit for, you know, identifying their strengths 
And, you know, again, Joe Moorhead is one of the best in the country as far as, you know, play calling is concerned. He's not getting cute. He's simply just keeping the defense guessing, even though they know a run is coming, which a lot has to be said about that because it's it's pretty remarkable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Utah came in favored. I, I don't know if you gamble that much, but if you do, what would your line be for this game? Would you favor the Utes? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I feel like uh, them favoring the the Utes and, and and them obviously being Vegas, I think that uh, was a huge service to Oregon. Now you have Mario Cristobal, who's probably, you know, been relishing the underdog role all week at practice. He's probably been preaching all week long, hey, we're the underdog, we're the underdog. Uh, I, I think that's a tremendous role for Oregon to be in. Uh, for the second time this season, obviously they were against Ohio State as well. Um, yeah, I, I think that's free money. I think that's easy money. I do actually think Oregon will win. I I predicted earlier today on the site I thought the Ducks would win by ten, and I feel like that's a pretty fair, uh, you know, a pretty fair score in my mind. I think I I think I went thirty seven twenty seven. Uh, might have been thirty four twenty four. Can't remember, but you know, somewhere in that range, I think the Ducks will win. And uh, again, they're going to lean heavily on the run game. Utah's offensive line is severely dinged up. Uh, I feel like this is one of the first times Oregon is playing a team that might be as injury riddled as as they are. And uh, you know, uh, that offensive line was was good to begin with, not great. And then you throw in some injuries, and on the other side of the football is Kayvon Thibodeau and Brandon Dorless and Popo and those guys. I think they're going to have a field day. So I feel like this is pretty good for Oregon. Yeah. Um, I, I'm in agreement with you. I, I don't understand really why the, the line favors Utah other than that weather element and that home element. But you laid the point out earlier, and it's spot on. The Ducks have proven they can win on the road this year, right? Go to Washington, win in the elements, and how about go to Columbus, right? Like everybody agrees that's one of the top 10 most hostile environments in college football. And they won and, there. Well, and they won. And to boot, something that, you know, I said back then and it still rings true. Anthony Brown seems to play his best football on the road, yeah. you know, and yeah. that's something that you get from a six year guy, you know, freshman, you know, or even say a redshirt sophomore typically, you know, have a lot of struggles on the road. And it's not, I'm not saying Ty Thompson will, that I'm, it's not an indictment. I'm just saying typically that's something that you get. And with Anthony Brown, sure, maybe he struggles for a half or comes out slow on the first drive or whatever the case might be. But that guy, you know, figures out a way to rally and plays some of his best football on the road. So you really need that uh, if you're Oregon, obviously trying to get into the playoff this year. How much of that is the crowd? Like, I ask this because just, just listening on, on the television broadcast and on the radio broadcast, because I, I flip between the two a lot of times, um, it, it felt like there were fewer boos Saturday than in any prior Ducks home game this year. And you were there firsthand. I, I'm sure you could confirm that. Uh, you know, I wrote about this on Sunday and, and I do recognize that and I'm, I'm happy to admit that was the first game that I'd been to this year uh, just for, you know, many reasons. But that was the first game I'd been to uh, this year for Oregon. Uh, But I will say this, that was the best crowd, the best home game environment that I've experienced at Autzen probably in the last three to four years. And, uh, you know, the, the, the students showed up 
and and were very loud and stayed nearly the entire game and and I'm not even I'm not even criticizing them. They stayed almost the whole game and and had a lot of energy. Um, you know the st- the stadium did start to you know filter out a little bit. I would say with about five minutes or so left in the fourth quarter, but it's somewhat understandable. Um, you know, it was a great experience. The tailgating uh, lot filled up pretty well. Yeah. Uh, and le- and let's face it, you had a you had a pretty good game, and it was a late start, which kind of sucks. But uh, you had an absolutely gorgeous day in Eugene, Oregon that day. It was somewhere around the mid 60s, might have even hovered up into the to the high 60s. Uh, you know, I was in a T-shirt throughout the middle of the day, you know, switched to a, a, a sweatshirt, you know, around four o'clock or whatever. But uh, it does not get much better than that for a mid-November-ish game uh, in Eugene. And uh, I, I thought it really showed up in the stadium as well that night. Yeah, yeah, good crowd. And, and I guess kind of what I'm trying to get to is I, I think – when the crowd goes a little easier on AB, and and maybe it's because they they trust him more now that he's been in that offense for a few games. I think when they go a little bit easier on him, he does a better job. Might be why he's as good as he is on the road as well. Um, well, you know, I think to your point with that, I think that the fans through you know the last few weeks through the players' interviews through Mark Cristobal's interviews. He ain't changing. He's not going to Ty Thompson, right. you know, so it's almost one of those things like, hey, you better get behind this guy or, you know, jump off the bandwagon. I don't know what to tell you, but this is the guy we believe in him. And, you know, this is the way this football team is going, uh, you know, and I you, again, it takes a lot of, you know, kind of gumption, if you will, for some of these coaches to stick by their convictions. You do see some guys that do flip flop. We know that that's not Mario Cristobal style. And I think fans picked up on this, like, hey, all right, here's the deal. Anthony Brown's the guy. There's no sense in booing him. Let's get behind him. And I and I think that's maybe a big part of what we're seeing as well. Um, you talked about this on the site, and, and the reason why, if you're listening to the pod, wondering why the hell haven't Matt and Justin talked about this yet, it wasn't official until about a minute ago. Mario Cristobal just spoke with the media and announced that Micah Pittman is – no longer a part of the Oregon program. Now, we've interviewed Micah before, uh, a young wideout on the Oregon team, uh, made catches as a freshman, made plays last year, made plays this year as well, just recently set a uh, career high for catches in a game about a month ago, but no longer a part of the Oregon program. Why do you think that is? Um... (laughs) That might be a whole podcast on its own right there, but, um, <laughs> you know, it's, it's, it's a difficult situation. You know, we've obviously seen, you know, the, the transfer portal become a bigger thing in college football. Um, you know, we've obviously seen that, that there are situations that benefit both sides. Um, you know, it, it seems as though his father more so than Micah himself was a little bit more vocal about the lack of a passing game and some of these other elements that they were experiencing. Um, you know, I, I felt, uh, you know, personally, I'm not sure that I, I totally support this decision 100%, and we could talk about that, uh, you know, moving forward. But I felt that at least Micah Pittman, in terms of how he's handled it through social media and those those things, has been pretty mature about it. Again, I'm not sure that I, I really support this decision. 
let me say this. I don't mind that he wants to transfer. That's fine. That's what it's there for. I think everyone should do what's in their best interest. I just think the timing's really bad. That's my statement on it. Yeah, that, that's the only real beef I have with it. I, I thought about posting on your site last night at the start of that great Micah Pittman freakout thread, the like Pittman gone question mark. And there's five pages of people just, you know, burning, burning down the, uh, the building basically. Um, I, I think that what, what you say every time a good player leaves a good program is equally true here that this is going to happen, right? When you have the recruiting success that you have at Oregon, good players are going to get pushed out by better players. And and I think that's part of this. That's okay. That's going to happen again and again and again every year. The other part of this, though, and, and this is just me. I'm an outsider. You're an insider. You've quoted Mario Cristobal as as saying something that I've heard him say in pressers before, iron sharpens iron. And I think we both know what that means. But I wonder sometimes, all that open competition, all that iron sharpening iron, right? Constantly players having to fight and earn their jobs over and over and over again. I wonder if that burns guys out like Micah Pittman, who maybe they felt like, they earned their job two years ago, you know? Well, you know, I think we can, uh, you know, go ahead and circle back on, you know, Isaac Slade Matua and and his decision to leave this offseason. It was very puzzling. That's a guy that had started. That's a guy, you know, that was that was due to play. And, you know, he elects to, to transfer from the program. Um, you know, I think that um, you is Micah Pittman going to get pushed out, you know, for the Utah game? No, that wasn't what was going to happen, but you could kind of see the writing on the wall that, you know, seven McGee was, was getting more carries and more, more reps on the field. You know, uh, Troy Franklin continues to see the ball more and more, uh, you know, Dante Thornton, again, another guy that's continuing to get on the field more and more. And, and I think that I'm not saying had Micah Pittman come back next year that he would get bumped and, and not been a starter, but, I think he could see that potentially, you know, there was danger of his, you know, of his targets going down, which they, you know, essentially his, his target share isn't all that good. If we're talking about, you know, uh, fantasy football, you know, his target share isn't all that good. Now, is he a, a good player? Does he run the right routes? Does he block? Does he do the? Yeah. I'm sure he does a lot of those things that, that earns him the starting that he's, that he's getting now. But again, Oregon's elevated that room. There's a lot of great talent coming in. Um, and I don't want to be, you know, critical of Micah Pittman, but more often than not, unless there's a coaching change or unless a school starts going through some sort of, uh, you know, scandal or investigation with the NCAA, oftentimes really good players don't transfer. I mean, 9.8 out of 10 times, a really good player doesn't transfer, uh, you know, to another program. There are some outliers. There's guys that maybe play for, you know, let's just say a Boise State and decide to move up and go play at Alabama or something like that. Those are natural moves. But, uh, you know, this particular move, when you're on a nine and one team, you're a starter, um, not a big, you haven't been a big contributor any year you're there. You, uh, a contributor in terms of stats, you know, he's been a contributor on the field. Um, 
you know, I don't know. It's it's kind of puzzling. Obviously, they they think the grass is greener on the other side by they. I mean, you know, the Pittman family. Um, I have no ill will towards him. It certainly is a puzzling move, though. Yeah, yeah. I um, I, it's I, a puzzling it's a puzzling move, timing wise. Right. You know what I mean? If he had if he did it in in January or February when the season's done. I don't think anybody would have would have had any ill will towards him. I think the only reason people do is because you decided to quit after you didn't get your targets in a game three quarters of the way through a season that you are potentially headed to the college football playoff on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we'll see. I, I, I also I, I, I'll, I'll say this and and then I, I think we can move on to some other topics, but I wonder if there's not something more to this story, just for for all those reasons you just mentioned, I think we both agree the timing is terrible, and we we've we've spoken to Micah before. I I think we both kind of know what he wants as a player, what what his family's looking for as a player. They know the timing isn't good. They know this makes him look terrible. Maybe there's something else to this story that we just have to wait on, you know? Yeah, maybe there is more to it. Maybe something happened in the locker room. We don't know. We don't, we're, not, we're not in there with those guys. Just optically for all of us that are on the outside looking in, you know, you see a guy that's been here. He's on a really good football team. He's starting. Sure, the team overall isn't passing the ball a lot. And so you could understand why a wide receiver might get frustrated. But optically also you just quit on a team that's headed for the college football playoff there's really no there's really not much of a negative for you to hang around for another month and stick this thing out but apparently they they felt differently and that's that's where they're at right um how does oregon move on uh i mean i you know again you were already seeing some of his reps uh you know going elsewhere you know seven mcgee is a guy that can fill in the slot very easily uh, you know, you've got Troy Franklin, Devin Williams has really been playing his best football. Uh, you've, you've got a lot of young talent there. I, I think you're, if you're Mario Cristobal, you're almost wit- wanting to figure out how you could get Dante Thornton on the field a little bit more. Well, it looks like you've just been given an opportunity. So, um, you know, uh, that's how they move forward. Uh, you got a couple of really good wide receiver commits committed now. Stephon Johnson, uh, Tetroy McMillan uh, committed in this 2022 class. Perhaps you get them on campus early. Of course, that doesn't help you this season, but moving forward next season into the spring, um, that cupboard is certainly not barren any longer, and that's been through recruiting. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm going to cross my fingers, too, on Darius Clemens. I love what that dude brings to the table. Um He's got to commit first, but it's looking pretty good. It's looking pretty good. (laughs) Um, Here's a fun one for you. I haven't had to ask this question for 11 months. Mario Cristobal, does he go to Miami? Absolutely not. Absolutely. (laughs) Uh, You know, I I tell you what, I'm like everybody else. I've become a pretty big fan of late kick and Josh Pate. I think he does an awesome job. He doesn't hot take his way into conversations. Right. Uh, he just he just seems to really be dialed in onto the hot topics at hand, and dives into them with a pretty level head. And I appreciate about that him. Uh, I appreciate that about him. Uh, and I agree. If you just look at this thing full scope, not just in terms of football, not in terms of record, not in terms of of roster. If you look at this thing full scope, 
Oregon is light years ahead of Miami right now. I mean, it's it's not even close. Now, does Oregon have the, the, the tradition and the championships that Miami had? No, they don't. I mean, Miami, you know, they, they were winning, and that's a heck of a program. But that program right now is so far removed from those glories, glory days, as is Texas, as is USC. And if you look at Oregon, it certainly looks to be – kind of positioning themselves as the quote-unquote Clemson of the West and, and kind of building up that power out here. And you have Phil Knight, who obviously is pretty much willing to open up the checkbook uh, and let Mario run things how he wants, within reason, of course. And there's a lot to be said for that. You've got plenty of money. Uh, you've got a – this hasn't been a one-year thing for Mario. This isn't like, right. oh, i got to show up and recruit well. No, he's been laying the foundation of so many things that continue to surface – as the years go on, expanding his staff, expanding, uh, you know, uh, resources, expanding his staff in the academic department, expanding, you know, the uh, practice facilities, you know, expanding the strength and conditioning staff. You don't just show up and do all of that overnight. That doesn't just happen. He's been building a monster somewhat quietly out here in Oregon. And I think that with the way that USC has been down, Washington has been down, uh, UCLA is just kind of a mixed bag. ASU is kind of in trouble. You've positioned Oregon to be a very dominant program for a long time out West. Uh, he's going to have as much money and resources as he needs. His recruiting has, has flourished. Uh, you are absolutely crazy to think that Mario is going to jump ship on that just because Miami signs a check that matches what he's making at Oregon. Right. Not going to do it. Right. Yeah. I just, you know, any, anytime that elephant walks into the room, I got to touch it just because, I, I get the appeal. Like, on its head, you have a Miami alum from the glory days. You have a former Miami assistant. You have somebody that has has openly talked about his, his love for that area. It's where he grew up. It's where he went to school. And um, and yet, for all those reasons you mentioned, I, I think, you know, we got to shoot it down because it is an overwhelmingly dumb idea. I'm, I'm curious, though. Let's say he gets that offer the year that Willie Taggart was at Oregon. Does he take it? Oh yeah, that's yeah, that's a totally different situation. You know, I I I and I say that because you know, again, Mario Cristobal has built something that has taken you know several years to get to this point. He's not about to walk away from having a program that I think myself yourself and a lot of people feel is on the cusp of of taking that next step and that next step is sure Oregon is a playoff contending team this year but he's not looking for that to be a one-off he's looking for that to be an every year type of thing just like Bama just like Ohio State Clemson you know those elite schools and he's he's really close to that but uh, you go to Miami and you've just set yourself back uh, a long ways and now if we rewind this and say hey would he would he have done this three years ago yeah he probably would have done it three years ago. Um, you know, I, I think that's fair to say. I also think that realistically, uh, and there's a lot of other factors here, but I know his family loves Eugene. His wife loves Eugene. They love raising their their, their boys here. They love having their family here. Um, I, I think folks are really forgetting that Eugene does offer something very nice for folks that, that do, you know, really enjoy that, that do, you know, really value that. And I think Mario Cristobal and Jessica Cristobal, his wife, you know, they see this as, you know, you know how some people, 
you know, hey, I found my forever home. And that's what, you know, what I feel like they they might see that, hey, this is not just a stepping stone program for us. This is kind of our 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 forever home, if you will. Uh, I, I really do feel that that is the case. Now, if Alabama opens up, sure, I'm scared shitless. OK, it's Alabama. You know, that's a whole different uh, can of worms. But it's going to take something pretty elite. And again, is Miami a good job? Yeah, it's a good job, but it's not a good job right now. You know, is 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 Texas a good job? Yeah, Texas is a good job, but it's really not a good job right now. I, I, there's differences there, uh, and I, I think he's got it pretty good at Oregon. Uh, Florida really doesn't scare scare me uh, that much either. I know a lot of folks are are concerned about Florida opening up potentially, which they, it probably will. I know LSU has a ton of money um, and can recruit really well. Um, I, again, I think Mario Cristobal is pretty happy where he's at, and. Uh, I'd be pretty surprised if he makes a move for pretty much anything but Alabama at this point. Okay. Well, you just checked off another one on the list because that was the follow-up question. You know, if if Miami said, uh, if if Mario said no to Miami, would he say yes to anybody else? And and I agree with you. I think Bama, Bama's the sleeper of of you've you've talked about this for a couple of years on this pod, and I I'm sure you've written about it before on your site. Nick Saban is not long for this job. He's getting up there, and we know he doesn't like that 24-7, 365 recruiting exhaustion. And um, with with NIL and with the, the media frenzy that follows every waking minute of his life, I, I think it makes sense for him to step away eventually when he does – Bama would be stupid not to call Mario Cristobal. Yeah, I mean, we think that way, but, you know, it is Bama. You know, they're going to, they're going to, you know, it's not going to be like the only call. Hey, we're calling Alec, uh, Nick, or excuse me, we're calling Mario Cristobal, we're done. Right. I mean, they're going to have right. their pick of the litter. So if Mario Cristobal continues to do what it certainly looks like he's doing, you know, yeah, he'll probably be one of the first few calls. But um, I don't know. You just never know with Nick Saban. Some of those guys are just wired that you think, okay, he's worn down, he's tired, he's got to be ready to pull the plug and you know a guy like that is just you know lives and breathes and and is so football based in their life you know he might be looking saying hey i'm gonna have a tough time walking away from this thing uh what else would what else what am i gonna do what am i gonna do with my time so i don't you know for me i don't have that problem but i'd be on a beach with a you know cabana and (laughs) margaritas yeah you don't but i'm not why you know you and i aren't wired the way he is and that's you know, ultimately one of the reasons that Nick Saban is Nick Saban. If you didn't have to work, what would you do? I just told you, man, I'd be, I I would travel. I really would. You know, I would, I would, I would find a lot of warm weather. Uh, I'm I'm not saying I'd have to be somewhere where it's strictly warm and that's it, but I'd find a lot of warm weather. You know, I'd take my boat out and, and, and surf on the lake a little bit and, and then have a couple beers and, you know, I'd travel. I'd love to see the Southeast. I'd love to see North Carolina. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd love to see, you know, parts of the of the Northeast as well, uh, you know, when things are normal, when things are, are back to whatever normal ends up being. Um, you know, I, I, there's a lot of parts of this country side that I'd love to see. Yeah. Uh, and then I'd kind of take it from there and, and, and find some spots, uh, you know, internationally, globally that I'd like to see. But I, I love to travel. I love to listen to live music. I love to experience restaurants in those areas and and try the food of those areas and, and, and meet the people. And, uh, you know, I think that's been one of the hardest things about, uh, you know, 
when we were in more of a lockdown during the pandemic is, you know, I'm a pretty social person and, you know, that interaction makes me happy that meeting somebody and, Hey, what do you do for a living? Cool. What, you know, do you grow up here your whole life? That, that kind of interaction uh, I really enjoy and appreciate. And uh, I, I think there's a lot that people learn from each other. I think there's a lot that you can learn by talking to other people and it might not, you know, be financially beneficial. It just might be, Hey, wow. You know, yeah, I should go to visit this place. This guy says it's pretty cool. Or I should, you know, go have, have this restaurant because they have the best steak in town or whatever. I just think I, I I love that part of interaction with, with human beings. Right on. Yeah. Just, you know, you, you got me kind of sparked on that train of thought talking about how these, these coaches, they're wired to win, right? They're wired to compete at football coaching, and they'll focus their entire lives on it, even when somebody like us might say, hey, I, I've got a couple million in the bank with those big contracts. Thank you, Bama and LSU and the Ducks and everybody else. And, you know, now I'm going to take a breather and pour myself a drink. Like, I know for me, if I had enough money to where I didn't have to work, my my college fraternity brothers from Oregon Tech have a an annual get together in Sun River, and every year um, they will rent a bunch of those um, like vacation cabins out there, and and I don't go every year because it's it's usually it's held at the same time every year, and usually it's on a weekend where I have a lot of games to cover, but uh, when I've gone. I've had some of the best experiences of my life out there. And I just love that part of the state and that part of the country uh, nestled, you know, right on the mountains and get all the snow. And at the end of the night, right, you, you pour yourself a stiff drink and step out into the hot tub and it's, you know, cold outside the hot tub and it's beautiful and comfortable and warm and wonderful in that hot tub. And I just, I think about that and how, I would love to just live that life year round. That that's what I would do if if I didn't have to work. I'd move to Sun River and uh, get myself a hot tub out in the snow. Yeah, I I was just in Sun River two weeks ago, so I I 100% know what you're talking about. We stayed, yeah. spent the weekend there with all the kids, and uh, you know you, you you venture on into Bend, and there's all the all the breweries and great restaurants and and everything like that. But just kind of being out there in Sun River where you know, life kind of seems to slow down a little bit out there and, you know, you just, you feel a little bit more in touch with nature, riding a bike around and, and walking around and, and, you know, seeing a bunch of trees around you. And like you said, you hop on the back deck and there's usually a hot tub on a lot of them and you're just kind of sitting there maybe and enjoying a, an adult beverage or good conversation or what have you. There's, there's a lot to be said for that for sure. Yeah. Um, Okay, uh, we've touched on the Utah game. We touched on the Wazoo game last week, on the Mario Cristobal Miami rumors that, that I think we both agree aren't going to go anywhere, and on that unfortunate story about number four, Micah Pittman no longer a duck, as reported today by Coach Cristobal, or, or really announced by Coach Cristobal, not reported. Um, do you want to talk hoops for a minute, or do you want to get into five games first? Let's just hit the hoops real quick, and we'll take it from there. Okay. Okay, so this is going to be quick because, well, I'll walk <laughs> you through it. When something good happens, 
I want to talk about it a lot and celebrate it. And I want you to hear about it because I think it makes for a good podcast. When something really bad happens, usually I'll skip past it a little bit. I I don't want to linger on the bad that much. I don't think we're good at that. So a lot of bad last night. Phil Knight Invitational was an eyesore for everybody as Oregon got slaughtered by Brigham Young. How did you feel about that game? I'm going to be honest. I turned it off somewhere in the second half there. I don't remember exactly where. Um, I, you know, I, I threw in the towel. I'd seen enough. I don't know what you want to call it, but, uh, look, I don't, I don't pretend or claim to be the hoops guru and, uh, and I never will. Um, you know, but I know enough about basketball to be dangerous and, uh, you know, BYU showed up. That's a really good team that I think folks are going to start talking about, uh, after what they did to Oregon as they should start talking about, uh, you know, that looked like a top 20 team. Uh, as things stand today, top 25 team at worst. Uh, Oregon looked like they didn't belong anywhere near a top 25 ranking uh, last night, at least. Now, they're long. They've got they've got some good players. They've got some shooters. They're not playing together as a team. Uh, they certainly looked completely uninspired last night. Just, hey, let's go through the motions. We should kick the crap out of BYU. No problem. BYU had other plans. Uh, I, I think... You know, Dana Altman, fully aware of what happened last night, addressed it in his post-game interview, uh, you know, took up a lot of the onus on that one himself. I would imagine those guys are probably running lines until there's blisters in their feet the next four or five days right. until they head to Maui. But uh, again, I'll say this. It was bad. It was really bad. And I'm not even going to sugarcoat it. But I continue to give Dana Altman the trust he deserves. I'm certain that we will not see a team that resembles that come January, February, March, but he's got some work to do. Yeah, I don't even think we'll see a team that resembles that come Maui next week. Like, I feel bad for Chaminade, a D2 school that the Ducks are going to obliterate the next time they play on the floor. Um, I I agree with you. I, I think that ultimately this was a BYU team that, that comes in with a very particular way of playing the game and an Oregon team that will have a particular way to play when they figure that out. And and as we've always seen with Dana Altman teams, it's, it's kind of a, a two-way street where he is really good at developing a roster over the course of a season and and getting a team full of new players to buy in and play together. But every year he has to develop a roster and retool his team and get players to buy in. We, We don't really have a lot of returning chemistry year in, year out. And I, I think that was extremely prevalent last night. Yeah. Um, no, you're hundred percent right. And I, 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 you know, if your immediate contradiction to that, and I know, I don't mean you, I just mean somebody right. is, Hey, look at the, you know, look at the women's team, look at what, you know, right. uh, Kelly Graves has done. It's not the same game. It's no. just, it's not the same game. It's not the same pieces, you know, granted they're, they're looking and playing pretty good basketball right now, but, but the men's game isn't the same. It's not, it's, it just doesn't work that way. Um, and it's no disrespect to the women. They are two different styles of basketball, completely different. And, uh, you know, like you said, I, I think we all agree Dana Altman will get there. Uh, if anything, if anything, 
maybe that is the very, very early wake-up call that Dana Altman gets to use the rest of the season of, hey, not let's not have another BYU lapse. Because, you know, you'd rather have that lapse, that game that transpired last night, you know, in November, mid-November, than you would in mid-January. So totally. for me, I'm just, I'm looking at the silver lining thinking, okay, maybe at least they got that donut out of the way and they can avoid it down the line, hopefully. Totally. Hey, and to, to what you just said about the men's game versus the women's game, that point boils down to this, the draft, of, of Dana Altman's best player plays for the Pacers right now because he got drafted last year. Kelly Graves' is best player, she's going to wear green and yellow for four years. It's, it's totally different in that light. And so if you're a good program, you've got to reload every year. Dana Altman has a good program. He's got to reload every year, and he can do it. We, we've seen him do it. Last year's another great example. But the fact that he has to do it, I think, needs to be um, at the forefront of our minds right now because this is not a, a they brought the whole band back together from a Sweet 16 team kind of situation, right? It's a reload. And so you're going to have nights like this. Like you said, at least you are going to have it in November and not in March. Yeah, yeah, better to have it now. And, yeah, like you said, you know, your best player, um, you know, your your best player on on the men's team is probably only there for a year. And, you know, the best player that ever came through the Oregon women's basketball program in history and ever will right. was there for four years. You know, Sabrina, obviously, is who I'm talking about. You know, she was there four years. It's going to be a huge difference, and that will almost always, uh, you know, be the case. And, and again, they'll be okay. That was really bad. I mean, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. That was really bad, but they're going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, do you want to talk about the women? Like, I, I know you watch the women more than you watch the men, and I don't blame you. The women kick ass. Did you watch any of the women this week? You know, I typically do, and I have watched – sporadically not with any great vigor at this point you know uh you know i know i, I will repeat this on the prod on the on the podcast and always do that you know once we kind of get done with football it gets a lot more of my attention but until right. that point comes you know it's it's unfortunately a definite backseat for me been watching the women um you know they're playing pretty good ball i know that a couple of the freshmen have ste- stepped up uh because of injuries uh i know tahina working her way back um, I mean, they're they're going to be great, but uh, I'm I'm it, 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 I don't know. Mate, is the Pac-12 women's down this year? It certainly kind of looks that way a little bit, but you know, it's a little bit early to jump to that conclusion. But yeah. uh, you know, I guess we'll see. Yeah, I I think there's still time. I mean, the fact that the Pac-12 had a monopoly on the national title last year, <laughs> uh, you know, both both of the championship game schools coming from the Pac-12. I think that you're going to see something like that again, especially considering who Stanford uh, brought back. But uh, Ducks are number nine. Massive win to start the year against a tournament team in Idaho State. And then uh, that the win over Dixie State, 84-35 on Sunday. I'll be honest, I didn't watch that one either. Uh, don't have Pac-12 Network. And, uh, you know, didn't, didn't really have that one circled on the calendar. But... They, they go to UP, uh, Child Center, University of Portland, on the 4th of December. I might go to that game. That, that's going to be a fun one. 
and then uh, some some real interesting matchups as they get through December into January with the start of Pac-12 play. Um, you know, I, I, I want to see the depth on this team. They were so young last year, and, and they really, at their best, could only play one way when they got big and slowed the game down. So I, I want to see if they can speed it up this year and, and play another way. And, and then I want to see if they can go to their bench this year, too, just because of the injuries they had last year. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, and, and it seems as though they're getting uh, tested a little bit uh, early this year uh, on their bench. But, uh, yeah, and, and the nice thing about some of these blowouts is you're able to get some of those young guns out there and get them some floor time. And, uh, you know, I think that's really valuable for Coach Graves uh, and this women's team. But, uh, yeah, they're rocking and rolling. And I think, I don't know, I know we've said it a couple times, and, and I, I think the year that, that, that we really felt it most, they got cut short. But I think we're in for a special season. Uh, you'll still never convince me that they wouldn't have had one last year, but, uh, that's in the rear view. So off we go. Hey, um, I, I was going to lead us into five games. Bruce Feldman just tweeted out the link to a story on the athletic. And I want your thoughts on this. Okay. Is there any chance we're going back to football here? Any chance mm-hmm. Alex Mirabal takes the FIU job? I, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> You know, I uh, and I know I know what you're trying to do. I know. Uh, by the way, I I kind of have a glimpse of what you're going to say. You don't have to sugarcoat it. Like Mario got screwed by FIU. I don't think he's going to let it, Alex Mirabal go. Yeah, I, that's the thing. I mean, if it was if it was FAU for for you know for that matter, I'd say it's a lot more likely. But yeah, for it being FIU, the fact that Mirabal is making good money. At Oregon, I know he loves being at Oregon. Obviously, we know that Coach Cristobal and Coach Mirabal are very good friends. But let's not kid ourselves on a couple things. It, you know, one is being that it's going to take, I think, the right job for Alex Mirabal to leave. And I'm not saying he wouldn't. Getting promoted to head coach is the logical next step in your career. You know, and really, that's actually two steps ahead for for Alex Mirabal, who's never been an offense, offensive coordinator. But that's okay. You can be a really good coach and, and not have been a coordinator. Yeah, I'm sure he's learned a lot from Coach Cristobal. Um, you know, those two those two guys are as good of friends as it gets on that staff. And, you know, I'm if I could envision this. I could en- envision all five foot five of Alex Mirabal walking into Mario's office in the HDC kicking open the door, saying, hey, I'm going to FIU. I could only imagine Mario Cristobal rolling around on the floor laughing his ass off as he says it. And it's not I'm not being remotely disrespectful to either person. That's just how far-fetched I think it is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, I just, you know, I figured while I have you here and while I came across well, that, I had to ask about it. Well, no, I, you know, I tell you what, that leads into something else, you know, and, and maybe we weren't going to talk about it, but, uh, you know, Joe Moorhead's name is going to continue to come up. I mean, all over the place, you know, he's been kind of semi-linked to Washington. Uh, you know, I know some other schools, they've kind of linked his name here and there, mostly through the athletic. And I give Bruce Feldman a lot of credit. He's really good at what he does, but it seems as though his coaching lists cover every single base you can cover. So then, oh, well, you know, Bruce Feldman put this guy's name on the list. Well, guess what? He put 20 guys' name on the list. You know, so yeah, his name was on there. Um, I, but I, in, in terms of, of Joe Moorhead, you know, that's a guy that I, I think is a lot more viable at this point that we see 
you know, taking another job somewhere else. And I think most Oregon fans are braced for that. Now, that said, I want to get this out there. I have a really, really, really tough time believing that Joe Moorhead leaves Oregon to go be the head coach somewhere in the Pac-12 conference. That makes absolutely no sense to me because Joe Moorhead's really good at X's and O's and offensive coordinator. And we know that, you know, he has been a head coach even, uh, you know, through, through some different stops. But I can't envision that guy saying, yep, I want to go head to head with Mario Cristobal for recruits every right. year. That does, that does, that makes absolutely zero sense to me. So, you know, if, uh, you know, if Texas Tech was open and I know they made their hire, but that's a good example. Hey, I could see that TCU. Sure. I could see that gets him out of the Pac-12. Actually, that's a really good opportunity for him, in my opinion. But, um, you know, again, just for people that think he's going to go to Washington, I think it's ridiculous. Yeah. Yeah. How about owning the DFW for the next 10 years? That would be a good job. But, uh, you know, the, the one that I would have circled for him is Penn State. Yeah, I, I think it's a I think it's a pretty massive step up. But yeah, you're in the right vicinity there. Yeah, you know, Penn State opens up. I'm sure he'll do not him himself, but I'm sure he'll have his agent do everything he can to get his name on the list. And so, uh, you know, that makes a lot of sense. And getting him back to the Northeast makes an absolute ton of sense too. Like, for instance, if a Maryland opened up or something something to that effect, um, uh, you know, Joe Joe Moorhead's going to take that job. But for him to go and move to the state, to the north, and compete with Mario Cristobal for recruiting head-to-head. He don't want that smoke, son. I promise you that. Yeah, yeah. And, and hey, we'll, we'll keep the carousel questions going the uh, rest of the month because you, you've talked about it on Twitter. There's probably going to be some pink slips across the Pac-12 in the next few weeks. Um, do you have your five games ready? I do. Cool. Five games we think you should watch. We do this every week. I have five games written down. Justin has five games written down. The catch is there's no Oregon game on that list because we know you're going to watch that one. This is just to supplement your college football experience over the weekend. I'll go first. I think it's the biggest game that doesn't involve the Ducks this weekend. Uh, 9 a.m. kickoff, ABC. Number seven, Michigan State, going to Columbus. Number four, Ohio State Buckeyes. I'm guessing you have this one down too. Yeah, no, we both have the the same same game there and the same way to kick off the weekend, and that's an absolute no-brainer. Of note there, though, of note, as I looked at it this morning, Ohio State is favored by 19 points, so that tells you how competitive they expect that game to be. Uh, I think Ohio State will... Uh, absolutely steamroll Michigan State. But again, you've got to watch that game if you're an Oregon fan, no doubt. Yeah. If the Buckeyes win, do they leapfrog the Ducks in the playoff? Well, you know, I hate to think about that, but it's certainly something I think you've got to watch. I mean, I, I think that, um, you know, again, if the committee stays consistent, okay, that's one of the only things you can ask for in, in refereeing, right, when we're talking about officials, is just to be consistent on both, either call really bad both ways or call it really good both ways. I think that's what you're going to look for from the committee. Hey, look, you, so far you've said that head-to-head, you know, same records, Oregon is ahead of Ohio State because of the head-to-head. Even if they beat Michigan State, who I continue to believe is overranked at this point, 
I do see the perils of that, but I hopefully they stay consistent. Yeah. Yeah. If Ohio State loses, who takes the four spot? Whew. I don't I don't know. Does that give uh does that give Cincinnati its shot at getting in there? I hope um so. Yeah, I mean I think that's what everybody would probably like to see happen. I think that um you know, now the, the danger there becomes, uh, you know, you've got Michigan State that's sitting at seven. Okay, so Ohio State loses to Michigan State. Do you bump them? Do you just swap them out? Or do you move Michigan up Michigan up, or Cincinnati up? Uh, I, I, I think the team that is is quietly that nobody's talking about that we need to talk a little more about is Notre Dame. And you, and you really got to take a look at, you know, at kind of what they're doing and what's left on their schedule and be a, a tad bit concerned. But again, you know, uh, if we're talking about the top six right now, um, it's almost almost statistically un, unfathomable that they'll all win out and all still be ranked, uh, you know, at number six or better uh, in three or four weeks. So I guess we'll see what happens. Okay. All right. Let's talk about Notre Dame, like you said, because that's my second game of the week. Number eight, Fighting Irish, welcoming Georgia Tech to the confines in South Bend, 1130 on NBC. Yeah, didn't have that one for me. Um, you know, I, again, I think Notre Dame's playing pretty good football. A lot of teams, I give Notre, Notre Dame a lot of crap because I think they're overranked. I do think they're pretty good this year, but, uh, uh, you know, haven't been tested in, in too many ways so far. So we'll see. Uh, Georgia Tech's always tough. You, you know, they, they run a, a pretty complex offense that you don't really see week after week. Uh, makes it difficult to defend them. Um, you know, I don't know, could be one of those, we've had a lot of upsets this year and I, I know, you know, Josh Pate loves to call it the Renaissance season and, uh, it's been a ton of fun. So maybe that's one, uh, my number two game, which I, I don't know why, but I put Iowa state and Oklahoma. Uh, it's also a nine o'clock game on Fox, but I, I, I kind of feel like Oklahoma might want to be on upset alert a little bit on that one. Oh, yeah. After last week, my goodness. I mean, we, we shouldn't have been that surprised because Baylor's a top 25 team. They're pretty good. But Baylor just crushed them last Saturday. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I again, I felt Oklahoma was and has been overranked. Uh, I still don't think they're that good of a football team. But one of the things I, I really took away from that is I think Lincoln Riley really outsmarted himself in that game uh, with the quarterback switch and, and just – I don't even know what he was doing. I, I think that's one of those uh, younger, earlier coaching mistakes that he'll probably learn from. I hope, but uh, but yeah, I, I just uh, I think Oklahoma might 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 lose its second straight, and a, a Matt Campbell Iowa State team is something they should very much be afraid of, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah, they better come out guns a blazing because if they lose this one big 12 is going to be in chaos uh sooners with two losses would drop behind baylor and be out of the big 12 title game potentially so a lot to watch out for there um so that that's your second game my third game is smu at cincy number five in the country uh 12 30 p.m on espn and the reason i have this one is purely Back to that playoff question from earlier, I hope Cincinnati gets a shot, but they got to win out. They do, and it's funny you should mention that game because my 16-year-old son last night's like, Dad, you know that SMU Cincinnati game, you know, watch out, you know, watch out for uh, for SMU, and uh, so he he's kind of 
he's kind of got that one on upset alert on his own. So I'll give him credit for that. Um, I don't, but uh, if he if he makes the call, he's he's gonna. I'm I'm sure I'm gonna hear about it from him. But uh, my my third game's UCLA USC, the battle for LA. Uh, obviously, not really a ton riding on the line. UCLA would like to get another win there. I think that's important for them. Uh, USC would like to probably show any sign of life under Dante Williams. It's been a real struggle since he's taken over. Um, and of course it's, you know, it's one of those, it's one of those, when the two teams are good, it's a really good rivalry, but unfortunately that hasn't been the case very often, but, uh, I do have that game down. It's a one o'clock game, you know, doesn't con- conflict with the four thirty game of Oregon. So that's my third game. Yeah. Um, how about uh, game four here for me, New Mexico at Boise State? And these aren't the two greatest teams in the world, but our friend Andy Avalos, I, I don't know how much people have watched Boise State this year. They're not going to be a New Year's Six Bowl kind of team, not going to be a team that gets in that playoff conversation, but I like what he's building there. Yeah, no, that that uh, again, that, that's not on my radar, really. But, um, you know, that that one, I mean, let's be real. It was kind of tough to get five games this week. There wasn't a lot on the not a lot of meat on the bone. But, uh, um, yeah, that could end up being a good game. And I don't know. The Mountain West is always kind of fun to watch. So I don't have a problem with that at all. Yeah. Uh, my fourth my fourth game was ASU and OSU, Oregon State. Um, I, I just think that that has potential to be a good game. I don't, I mean, I don't really think that, you know, there's a lot for it that relates to Oregon specifically. Obviously the Ducks do play Oregon state next weekend, but, uh, I, I just, it's a seven thirty game. You can watch it after the Ducks are done. Um, that was my fourth game. I think, I think it's worth watching. Yeah. Yeah. If, if Oregon loses to Utah, if, then you want to keep your eye on that. ASU OSU game purely for some Pac-12 title implications down the line, but I agree with you. Um, you might not care about it. Now I, I'm with you. I have that game down. 7:30 kick on ESPN. Uh, a couple of points of note for me. Beavs just got win number six on the year. I I want to see them test the limits of that program. Try to get number seven and maybe. You know, just throwing it out there. Maybe they have a competitive game there at the end with the Ducks. Um, the uh, the other point of note is after that ESPN debacle last Saturday at Autzen, I want to see how the worldwide leader, quote-unquote, responds to all of that criticism, and I want to see the broadcast quality that they put out at Reeser. Yeah, it'd be nice if it was better, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, I won't hold my breath, but uh, last game for me, which I had to, I, I honestly just had to find a fifth game. So I went back Arkansas, Bama at twelve thirty CBS. Uh, you know, two top twenty teams. I, again, if we're talking about that top four uh, college football playoff, you're keeping an eye on Bama. Arkansas has played good football at times, haven't played as well at other times. Uh, but again, Vegas has Bama as a twenty point five point favorite. So clearly, they're not expecting much. Yeah. Yeah, it's a tough week for the SEC. Like, Bama's going to win easy. I wanted to put Georgia down, but they're going to win easy. They're playing Charleston Southern. You know, it just there weren't a lot of, of tough games in the SEC. No, no. The SEC the last two weeks have, have, have started the, the powder 
the powder puff scheduling and uh, it shows. And then, you know, the Big 12 is really just not very good. So there's not really any games to circle there. Uh, the Big 12, once again, kind of seems top heavy. You, you get a game or two there. And then obviously the ACC is bringing absolutely nothing to the table, uh, you know, for that matter. So, yeah, it's been a little bit harder to find, um, you know, those 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 truly fun games. But again, I guess that's also part of what's making the parody in college football a little bit more fun this year. You know, there's a lot of teams that, that still have a chance to win and and a lot of upsets are taking place. And that's uh, that's always fun. Yeah. All right. Um, those are our five games of the week. We have Lock of the Week, and then we'll wrap the pod. Lock of the Week. We have a prediction we feel so confidently about that we lock it in. Oregon going down to the mountains, playing Utah on Saturday. What's your Lock of the Week, Justin? Well, you know, my Lock of the Week is this. I I, I am going to go with the defensive line. I think they're going to take the fact that they're an underdog very personally i think they're going to also take advantage of the fact that that offensive line is absolutely beat up uh and i and i think that the coaches have probably hit home hey look a lot of folks think that uh this utah team's really physical and and can push you guys around so uh you know for me i i'm gonna go ahead and say that this oregon defensive line uh, and, and I probably should include the linebackers only to be fair, but I, I think Oregon, my lock of the week, will get three sacks this weekend. Three like sacks it. on Utah's quarterback. I like it. I like that a lot. You know, I, I, I was honestly wondering whether to do that or whether to go the other way, just because I, I think after what Kayvon did the last time Utah played him, I think they might have him pinpointed this week of, you know, we're not letting number five wreck the game again. Uh, I'm, I'm going to go on offense, and I'm going to say that, that Byron Cardwell gets another touchdown to his tally. I'll give him a touchdown and shoot. I'll give him 100 yards as well. He wears 21, and I don't think that's the only thing he has in common with LaMichael James. This dude runs like a a stock car racing down the field just his wheels his vision i think oregon has a really special back in byron cardwell and what's amazing is he doesn't have to feature for this team they can they can spell him maybe five ten touches a game and he's lightning in a bottle i I think he has another big day yeah he's just continuing to grow um his natural vision uh, is about as good as we've seen in a while. I would say it's probably very close to Kenyon Barner, who also had that very natural vision as a running back. Um, he's a smooth runner, does a really good job of getting north-south, which is one of my favorite things about Die. Even though he's a smaller guy, he typically isn't running east-west. He's going north-south, um, which I think is a huge reason for his for the huge plays that he uh, continues to make. And, you know, let's not kid yourselves. Oregon has traditionally had success when they've had two good running backs back there and been able to kind of do the thunder and lightning approach if you will now of course that was a big thing under gary campbell and he's no longer here but uh you know when you're able to put a back that's the caliber of cardwell out there uh in the third quarter and fourth quarter and he's fresh it's really troublesome for a defense so yeah like you said if this offensive line can can push Utah's defense around. 
uh, and kind of wear them down as the game goes on. And then you end up getting a, a fresh running back that's really good out there that that can hit the big play. Uh, it can be a backbreaker, no doubt. All right. Um, Oregon, Utah, you're picking the Ducks to win. I'm picking the Ducks to win. And uh, we both like Oregon to have a pretty physical win on Saturday. You think the Ducks' D-line will notch three sacks. I think Byron Cardwell adds another hundo and a touchdown to his tally on the season. I, I wrap the pod the same way, and I'm going to wrap it this week as well. Uh, if you, you like what you hear, share it with a friend. Share it with a Duck fan especially. And thanks for listening, and go Ducks! I can do this now